Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. How do we have honest, respectful, and Bible-centered conversations on race and unity? What do we do with our fears of saying or doing the wrong thing or not doing or saying the right thing? How do we bring together empathy and care and appropriate action on the one hand and careful thinking using biblical categories and goals on the other? These are just some of the questions that we'll get a chance to discuss on today's podcast, and I'm really excited uh, to talk about these things with my new friend, uh, Monique Desson, and you'll hear more about her powerful story here in a minute and, and her insights on these things. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Monique. Uh, Monique is the president and founder of the Center for Biblical Unity, which I love the tagline and even some of the swag they have for sale. You know, one race, one people, one savior. I love that. One of the phrases on there says, you know, in a culture polarized by race and where conversations about race often lead to division, strife, and blame, the Center for Biblical Unity exists to lead respectful and Bible-centered conversations on race and unity. So again, we're going to talk more about her and her story, but that's a little bit about the Center for Biblical Unity and Monique. And hey, I'm just glad to have you on the podcast today. So thanks for taking some time. No problem. Thanks for having me. You know, and I know, you know, we got to talk even a little bit yesterday, just setting some of this stuff up, and we have found already some very important common ground, our, our shared love for barbecue and some of those kind of things. So, you know, we, we established yeah. that ribs, both wet and dry rub, so we can go on, on both of that. So, yeah, so we've already started some of that key common ground. But, no, it's just been really appreciate just getting to know you a little bit and excited for our audience to get to hear about the work, the critical work that you're doing with the Center for Biblical Unity. So so let's uh, let's dive on in a little bit and maybe just maybe just tell us a little bit about kind of your story a little bit in terms of, because I know there's God is at work kind of writing that and even some new chapters, um, even this year for you, but maybe talk a little bit about kind of your background and kind of what made you care about this area so much. All right. Well, my name is Monique Dufon, and I grew up in Los Angeles. I uh, grew up during the time where um, things like the, the riots of 92 happened with Reginald Denny being beaten and things like that. I could actually stand out on my street corner and, and see the riots taking place. And one of part of what shaped, I think, my thoughts about race were the ideas that I got to hear from adults in my neighborhood, um, my teachers at school and things like that, that, you know, being a black woman, or being black in culture, in the American culture, meant that we would always be the underdog, that we would, um, even though they didn't use the word oppressed, um, that was more of the narrative, that we would, you know, we would always be in this poverty situation, and whites would always be above us. And so I kind of grew up with that. I grew up to be unapologetically black. And I remember a T-shirt my mom got me when I was, like, 12. It said, um, like, black woman, no sugar, no cream, with Nefertiti on the front of it. And, you know, so those were kind of some of the things of just, like, you know, we're black and we're proud to be black. And people may not understand the black experience, but this is us and, um, you know, this is our culture. And so grew up like that. Um, got involved in church when I was about 16 and, you know, still, you know, trying to figure out God and my own identity and things like that. But when I went to, I went to a, a prominent Christian school out here in Los Angeles, and I studied sociology. I always had a heart for things like social service, social work, the foster care system and things like that. And when I went to school, I learned the term critical theory or critical race theory and read a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And this book helped to explain so much of what I was experiencing as a minority in a pretty much all white university. And it just kind of confirmed some of the things that I had heard growing up, you know, so, oh, you know, the idea that black people think about things different, black people experience things different was just all solidified. And so I began to eat up this idea of black people being oppressed, being marginalized, 
and white people really being oppressors and things like that. And um, from, you know, my time in university until about two years ago, I upheld this framework that, you know, would be technically called critical race theory. But for me, it, it was just a, a way of living life of, you know, wanting to make people aware that things like systemic racism was impacting black people, that black people could not have fair opportunities, that there was a glass ceiling, that we were always um, going to be oppressed and never be able to make it as far as white. In 2014, I moved to South Africa and I did work with children and youth in elementary and high schools. And in 2018, I returned home. I returned home with mission field induced PTSD and needed a bit of help. And the way that the Lord brought help to me was by having me move in with my friend Krista. And Krista's white and her whole family's white. And she began to challenge me on the way that I saw the world regarding whites and blacks and our fundamental, our fundamental foundation. Are we first oppressed and oppressors or are we first brothers and sisters? What was my key belief? Was I upholding cultural narratives and cultural frameworks? over scripture or did I hold scripture over the framework? And so for the last two and a half years or so, I've been unraveling and walking this road with God to unravel a paradigm that I held for 20 years. And so this is kind of my story and and why I am, you know, or how I got to where, where I am with the Center for Biblical Unity. In walking out and having the Lord really unravel my, my paradigm, I felt that I could see that culture was um, being, becoming more and more hostile. When I moved home, I was like, what in the world has happened to America? And in prayer with the Lord and our conversations, he told me I needed to start the Center for Biblical Unity. And I was like, I have no idea what this is. And so we went back and forth for a couple months, and eventually in February, I finished all the paperwork, and we were founded as a a physical entity within California. And literally a month later, the world lost its mind, first with Ahmaud Arbery, and then Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd. And from there, the Lord has really just opened up a space for me to be able to use my voice in regards to biblical unity and what that looks like and the idea that cultural frameworks will never get us to true unity. That's a long answer. No, that's great. No, 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 do you apologize, man? I think that's such helpful context because that you bring your perspective to that and very important observations that you have really lived and grown up with and you see, you know, have seen the world from. And, and so that's why I think it's so helpful uh, to hear those perspectives and then also your journey on that. And I guess one of the questions and and one of the things I've appreciated just about getting to know you and hearing your story and things like that is even, even talking about just, you know, our our culture right now. And there's so much, you know, there's so, it's so heavy. There's in, there's obviously tons of important things to even talk about there, but, but, but something I want to go back to something you said that I think is really critical for us, especially as Christ followers. Why is it really important right now in the heaviness, in all of this stuff that's going on for us to love each other well and listen well, but using the category that you said of brothers and sisters, why is that an important thing? And even that whole framing of how we begin to have this conversation? Well, I believe that there are two important dynamics at play, the kingdom of heaven and then the kingdom of this world. As children of God, we belong to the kingdom of heaven. And so how does our father speak over us? What do we see in scripture? We see brothers and sisters. We see that we're reconciled. We see that we're children of God. We are the redeemed. Like he, he speaks certain words over us. And that is how we should be speaking over one another. Culture is going to use its own language that is not true. Oppressed and oppressor, um, victims, victimizer, racist. Yeah, there, there are just 
many words that we don't see in scripture. And if we are not seeing them in scripture, we shouldn't be adopting them into the body of Christ. Yeah. And that, and that's so helpful because then that even frames the posture where there really does need to be progress made or wrongs made right, or things that need to be changed or biases that need to be, you know, spotted or blind spots. But if we're doing that from a posture, we're starting from a posture as Christ followers of brother and sister. And, you know, but our culture's paradigm is really that us versus them paradigm. That's such an important starting point, and that's that's one of the things I really appreciate about some of the things I've heard you say, and and, and even as we take the scripture seriously, in some ways we don't we don't get the luxury of of utilizing the world's categories. Christ has called us to more, and our world desperately needs that more than ever right now for us to kind of live those things out. So yeah, so thanks for drawing that distinction. With that though, and, and in the importance of, and we'll talk about, I mean, again, there are so many different aspects of this conversation we can talk about, but in why is it also equally important to kind of think about, think clearly and biblically using biblical categories and goals and not just act from strong emotions? So it's like, Okay, we're feeling a lot of things. We want to do something. That's kind of the one hand. Sometimes in that, though, we don't always, maybe people's natural first response isn't to think clearly or carefully. What, just speak to that, because that's something I know you're passionate about as well, is, is these ideas and the thinking part is, is very important in this too, right? Yeah, it is. It's important that we think about how we are approaching the conversation, the terms that we're using, um, even where our emotions go, because if they don't line up with scripture, then we're going to be on the wrong in the wrong lane. So if I consider things like microaggressions, for for example, um, let's say that part of well, part of my issue with microaggressions is that it will accuse someone without any evidence. And so if we take culture's definitions of microaggressions and that microaggressions should be believed and a person can be accused without evidence, then we are sometimes going directly against scripture where it says that before you bring an accusation, you need to have witnesses. Before you, before you bring a judgment, you must have witnesses. So you can have the accusation, but is it valid? Is it true? Is that the intent of someone's heart? These are the things that would put us in, in the place of God when I can now declare intent and motive to someone's heart. Like Paul says that it's better that we wait for the judgment of the Lord because only he can judge the motive of someone's heart. But that's not what we're seeing in culture. In culture right now, we're seeing that, well, this was my experience. This is how I experienced it. And because I experienced this this way, it must be true capital T true, which brings the problem of, well, what is objective truth? Is everything heavily, so heavily relied on subjective truth that we can install like motive to someone's heart? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, it's that idea of the, the experiences. Cause I mean, again, a lot of people are talking about, and again, they're real experiences. I'm sure we could, I could ask you, Hey, how have you experienced um, racism in your life. I'm sure you've got stories and experiences on that and and other things. But I think that the connection that you're making is so important is our experiences aren't ultimate, right? I mean, they don't just because we have a lived experience that doesn't settle every question or, or give us every answer. Right. And so there's that's trying to navigate those parts. Yes. And where do we allow for mistakes? You know, if if someone says something to me and let's just say, you know what, that that statement really landed the wrong way. It really, you know, was kind of demeaning to me as a black woman. Where do I have conversation with that with that person and say, hey, you know, this is what happened. This is what my experience was and give someone else the opportunity to say, oh, wow, I had no idea. Or, yeah, you know, I said it like that and I missed it. You know, where do we where do we have conversations? Things like microaggressions really shut down the conversation because it automatically goes to blame. It automatically goes to an accusation and that will shut down conversation. If you are being accused of racism, which a microaggression is a form of racism, if someone let me put it on me, if someone were to accuse me of racism without me understanding, you know, what I've done 
And without someone wanting to hear the intent of my heart, I personally would get into a, a thing of offense. You know, I would say, hey, well, you know, if that's how you want to be, then that's how, you know, I guess it's going to be. That shuts down any line of communication. It doesn't open the door for forgiveness. It doesn't open the door for inquiry. And this is what we're seeing in culture. We're seeing arguments happen because there is no line for inquiry. There's no lane for curiosity. It's only Hmm. you did this. This is my experience. And now I will cancel you. Yeah, and that and that's and that's shutting down. I mean, you know, in some ways, there's there's the possibility for some conversations to happen right now that honestly have needed to happen for a very long time. But at the very same time, sometimes, well, many times, those things are just being shut down before they can even get started. I mean, I I know lots of people yeah. are, are wondering, hey, you know, I'm afraid to say anything because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Or maybe I haven't said enough or I haven't done enough. Right. Maybe speak to the person who's feeling that, whether they're black, white, person of color, whatever, like, you know, that that feeling right now. What would you what would you say to, to all of us in that regard? Get in a conversation with Holy Spirit about what you should be doing. Like, what is the Lord telling you that you should be doing? Culture right now will put pressure on whites because white silence is violence. But then as soon as you say something, if it's not the right thing, then you are exerting your white supremacy. The same thing with blacks. If I don't join the current black narrative regarding race and racism, then I am many derogatory, you know, terms and slurs and things like that. And if I am joining the current rhetoric, then I need to be doing it in a certain way. Do I have the hashtag right? Do I, you know, have I read all the right books to let everyone know that I'm woke and things like that? I can't become so focused on culture and culture's demands that I miss what the Holy Spirit may be telling me to do. That That's really, really helpful and, and encouraging because I think there's all of us, because look, if we, if, you know, if we name the name of Christ, then, then the spirit is alive and active in our life and trying to conform us to the image of Jesus, which we all <laughs> need to grow in. And so there's always a next step we can we can take, and so that's that's why that I think that's so encouraging, because it feels so heavy right now. It's like, well, man, I don't know how to how to fully do everything I'm supposed to do or not do or everything else. And so so taking those next steps right where people are at, you know, in conversation with the Holy Spirit and Scripture is so vital. So I love I love that I love that. Well, you you mentioned a word a second ago, and and maybe our audience is familiar with it. Maybe they're not. In some ways, you know, it's kind of like this, you know, uh, maybe a category analogous to, obviously, we're in this era of COVID-19. And so words that we would have never used before, like social distancing, like now that's a thing. Like we all fully, fully know what that is, right? So mm-hmm. so there's all these new buzzwords. There's all these new, it's almost like there's a new cultural lexicon or dictionary that's emerged in this last even month, I think, for people that inside the church, outside the church, in our culture, they're coming across these terms, woke and justice and social justice and white supremacy and racism and fragility and all, all this stuff. And we'll come to maybe some specifics in a minute, but um, maybe just at a high level, because this is part of your story and part of what you grew up with and know very well is you've done a lot of thinking about this. And so in your perspective, as we kind of get into this conversation, and, and I promise by the end, those of you who are listening, we're going to talk about some practical ways to move forward in, in biblical unity and, and some great insights there. But we've got to think carefully and clearly, too, um, along the way. And so, Monique, what, how would you think about it in terms of this question? You know, can the Christian gospel and woke ideology live together? I know you've talked about that before and even used the term critical theory. Maybe just kind of maybe do a broad overview and then we can dive into some particulars just to define terms that people are maybe encountering, but maybe they don't always mean what they think they mean anymore. Yeah. Just at the offset, I say no. You know, woke ideology and the Christian gospel cannot live together. Woke ideology, the term woke um, refers to being aware of the social injustices that are basically ever-present around us. It comes from critical race theory, which 
is just the investigation um, into injustices within a society based on race. That stems out of critical legal studies, which comes down from critical theory. Now, critical theory is more of a, a broad overview of looking at culture and who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors. It comes out of the Frankfurt School, which came about in the, gosh, I think the, it was officially formed in like the late 30s, but it was formed by Marxist thinkers. So after Marxism came a group of thinkers from the Marxist, Marxist schools of thought, and they, all, they came together and formed the Frankfurt School. When the Frankfurt School came under heat in Europe, they actually fled to the States. I believe they fled to New York, and they developed more of their, their framework and ideology here in the States. But it is the, the thought that we are no more than oppressed and oppressors. We have the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. You're all, we're always going to participate in a who is the oppressed and who is the oppressor. Who will, who will overturn? So when will the oppressive class overturn the oppressors? It's a constant cycle of oppressed and oppressor. This is what CRT really is, is looking is looking at, like, who was being oppressed based on race. But now we actually can pull things from critical race theory, like intersectionality. So who is being oppressed based on their race, based on their gender, based on their disability, their sexual orientation? One of the ways that I like to think about critical theory or critical race theory and why I say woke ideology won't fit together with this is because if you consider critical theory to be the engine of a train, critical race theory would be behind it. And right behind that would be LGBTQ or queer studies, queer theory, and things like that. After that, you would have feminism, ableism studies, child theory, and child studies. So on this train, you're getting a bunch of different frameworks that go against the historic Christian narrative. When we look at critical race theory and the idea that we are oppressed and oppressor, that right there goes against how God speaks over us compared to being brothers and sisters. When we get to the train or the car right behind it, queer studies and things like that, and we look at the idea of inclusivity, while I could say, you know, in, in the critical race theory car, inclusivity would be cool. Like, it's, it's good to have people of different ethnicities at the table sharing about Christ and things like that, but are we having inclusivity for inclusivity's sake? So now we get people like James Cone who hold to, like, liberation theology, because he's black, so we need we now need to have inclusivity for inclusivity's sake. When I go to the the queer theory car, and they say, "Well, we want to be included too, so we need to now be a part of your clergy," but that goes against the historic Christian gospel, the historic Christian framework. We have to understand that as we see these things come into the church, they are attached to a much larger framework and something that is way deeper than what we are seeing at the surface. Critical theory is a deep framework that is tied directly to Marxism, which would be connected to socialism. And, you know, if we are adopting pieces of this framework, even out of a good intent, what we're not seeing is kind of like that, that old adage of, you know, you give, give the devil your pinky and he'll have your elbow. You know, we aren't understanding that these things, like woke ideology being woke, is saying so much more than what we even realize. That's a long answer again. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's helpful. So let's 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 I'm let's. It's helpful. Yeah, no, it it is helpful. So let's let's dive in a little bit to that because. Even saying that out loud right now on social media or Twitter or in some some circles, where people would say, "Well, well." Are you so you're saying that no one has ever been oppressed or that injustice has ever never have occurred or that slavery is okay? Of course not, right? We're not saying any of 
any of those things, it's just, it's really important to see that there is a whole, um, as you put it, there's a train of ideas and boxcars that carries these ideas that, that people are attaching themselves to, maybe even with good intentions and unwittingly in the process that aren't going to take us to a place of biblical unity in the end. And we'll come yeah. with that. That's, that's not consistent, um, with that. And so, and we'll talk more about these things as we go. So people are seeing, uh, you mentioned this, you know, like, you know, you're seeing this call to, to read the right books and say the right words and things like that. So let's just from, from a perspective and your understanding, cause you're familiar with these things defined for people. Like when most people probably hear the term racism, like the common everyday person on the street, they probably would understand by that, that racism means, okay, I treat someone with prejudice because of say they have a different skin color or something like, like it's an action that I willfully do. Like that's probably the common sense mm-hmm. definition. Right. So, but when you see racism now on social media and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and on the news and everywhere else is that's not really what's being talked about anymore. Is it, or maybe speaking to that? No, it isn't. So racism by and large has always been understood to be, you know, I, don't like this person because they have a different skin color than me. I said a derogatory term to them or word to them because they have, I'm black, so they would have white skin or a different color skin. They are a different ethnicity than me. Um, Maybe, you know, people who are in the Ku Klux Klan, people who intentionally harm others because of the color of their skin, racism. Right now, the way that racism is being defined is prejudice plus power. So having a prejudice, but also having a power within society. So white people would be the, the ones currently in power. They have the majority rule. Without having the power, I cannot participate in racism. I can't be racist because I don't, I don't have the institutional power to possess Um, any change. And so what we're seeing now is a shift in racism, a shift in the definition. And because of that shift, we're hearing things like, well, all white people are racist. All white people participate in racist systems, even if they don't know it. Just by virtue of the color of their skin, they benefit from a system that is racist. Thus, they are participating in racism. Right. And so what you're then seeing, and so that definition is has shifted. So people are like, well, of course I'm against racism, but they have maybe in their mind definition A, which is like me willfully, you know, doing or saying something against someone for those reasons. But in, but, it, but what you're saying is no part of what the new dictionary is using in terms of racism as that power component, which says you literally can't be a racist if you do not have the power. Is that right? Yes. So I might hold prejudice, I might have bias, but to actually be racist, I would also need the component of white skin. Yeah, and then so that's where all of these new other terms come in, like, for example, um, like white supremacy or white fragility. We'll talk about those in a second. Like white supremacy, most people would think, okay, well, that means the KKK, right? That's, that's white supremacy, but that's not really what white supremacy means right now as it's being used, or at least only that, right? Can you speak to that in terms of the lexicon there? No, right now, white supremacy is upholding the systems that will maintain whiteness or will uh, will continue to support systems that benefit white people. Right. And so, and so those are very different definitions. So sometimes people are saying, well, I'm for this or I'm against this or I'm, I'm, you know, and they're reacting to these things, but they're not aware that the terms of the conversation have even changed. And so, um, cause that's important if we're wanting to think carefully and do the good that we intend to do and, and all that. Well, let me, let me pause real quick and just let everybody, our listeners know my conversation today is with Monique Desson. She's the founder of the center for biblical unity. We're talking about this important conversation and we're defining our terms a little bit right now, uh, because there's this big cultural conversation going on and we're wanting to make sure, okay, how do we move forward in a biblical way with biblical categories and biblical ends that don't get co-opted by cultural narratives and a secular perspective, which quite honestly just doesn't have the resources or the ability to 
to bring about the good that we all want to see. And what we're not saying, and you feel free to speak into this, is we're not saying that real racism hasn't occurred or isn't occurring or that real injustices haven't occurred, like with George Floyd and other instances like that. It's just there's this massive conversation right now, and we're taking a minute before we kind of get to some of the practical implications of how do we move together well in this to define some of these terms because it's just confusing to a lot of people because it's all happening at once. But feel, So feel free to kind of interact with any of my summary there that, that you want to. Yeah, no, it, it's true. One of the things that we say on our podcast, all the things is, do you know your terms? You have to define your terms. How are you defining justice? How are you defining fragility? You know, how are we defining our terms? Because right now there is within culture a shift in, in the terms, you know, and if we aren't able to understand what is being talked about, we are going to miss the opportunity to actually speak into culture and make a change and to speak into the church because this ideology is within the church too. And and speak to that. How are you seeing that make inroads or even some of the division or those, those things make inroads into the church? Cause I know something that's something you're very passionate about. Seeing books like white fragility being platformed from the pulpit, seeing pastors tell white parishioners that they need to repent for their racism, that they need to lament. I had I have parents message me all the time and a lot of parents are now finding that in within their kids Sunday school or children's ministry that the leaders want to lead children in prayers of lament for their whiteness or are telling kids that you know, all of the problems that are currently happening in America is because white people are racist. I'm like, I'm nine. I just wanted to come from my milk and cookies and hear about Moses. You know, this <laughs> is not the way that we, we raise our kids. We don't indoctrinate them into an ideology that puts their skin color first. They are first children of God. Their identity has to first be formulated at the cross within Jesus, not within the color of their skin. We don't want to, to create a division for children that says, you know, well, you're different. You're black and you're white. And white, you're bad. And black, you're victimized or you're the victim. There's a different conversation that is held within biblical unity where we, we don't see this language of victim and oppressor. How do we raise our kids in that? And as adults sitting in the pews, you know, I don't see in the New Testament anything about this idea of I now need to corporately repent for the sins of my ancestors. You know, what, what are we putting forward? How, how are we promoting real unity and not demeaning someone because of the color of their skin? So now because you're white, you're fragile. That isn't that isn't how we've dealt with brothers and sisters since the formation of the church. Have we had problems? Sure. Have we been able to talk about those things? Yes. But to blanketly put over someone, oh, well, you know, I called you a racist and you cried or you became angry. That's just because you're fragile. Where is the win in that? Where is the the outcome that actually spurs me on to relationship, that spurs me on to unity? I I don't see it within this framework. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and, you know, even, I mean, goodness, there's so many different things we can talk about, you know, because in the scripture we see, right, the sin of partiality. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, look, we're not saying that, um, you know, there's no sin to be addressed or repented from. <laughs> there, we're not saying that there's no wrongs that need to be made right. We're not saying that things don't need to be addressed or spoken about or even changed or even, even some legislation. What That's not, but all of these things are getting wrapped up. So maybe to keep our terms a little bit in, in terms of that biblical framework, talk a little about the sin of partiality and how that would play into this conversation as underlying a lot of that, that, that we need to address, you know, all of us in, in that regard. So with the sin of partiality, we see in Scripture that we shouldn't treat people better or worse because they are rich or poor. Um, we see that in Acts, 
Peter goes, uh, I'm going to mess up this story, but Peter goes and shares the gospel at someone's house. And right before that, he had the vision and the Lord was like, you know, the things that I call clean are clean. And you don't have to worry about separating out the things that are clean or unclean. And what Peter saw was, you know, wow, the Lord really does care about all. It's not a thing of Jews and Gentiles, but he is now creating a new people, his people. When we get to to the New Testament and we, we look at Acts, we hear language of people being in Christ or in Adam. These are the distinctions that we have, um, you know, within the church, not the distinctions that culture is wanting to put on us. Now, when we begin to, we can begin to look at people from this distinction of, well, you know, they're black, so we're going to do this, or they're white, so we're going to do that, or this person's rich, so I'm going to treat him this way, or this person's poor, I'm going to treat him this way. This is the sin of partiality, and we're not supposed to have anything to do with it, because the Lord does not participate with us in partial ways. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's where, where I'm seeing, you know, like, even within the church, we're participating in partiality under this guise of social justice, under this narrative of, well, I want to do good. Well, we can't do good and participate in partiality. The two don't go together. And I'm not saying that injustice isn't real. I'm not saying that racism isn't real. I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, things that we can speak into regarding um, the way that people are treated, all people. You know, one of the things that I struggle with regarding the issue of racism is that it feels like within culture and, I mean, by definition, that we need to be looking at racism purely as how blacks are treated. Yes, we should look. I'm black. So I care about black life. Mm -hmm. You know, I do. So we need to look at how are black people being treated. And I have white brothers and sisters. I have Hispanic brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters. Like the body of Christ is vast. And so how are we treating others? How are people being treated? This is where, to, for me, this comes down to a thing of, yes, there is injustice in the world, and we should be caring about the human. We should be caring about the person sitting in the pew, not just because they're black but because they're created with dignity, value, and worth, they're fellow image bearers. And so when Absolutely. we want to look at partiality and things like that, we need to be considering, like, is this person being treated differently than I am? You know, mm -hmm. for me as a black woman, I can go out and, you know, say, well, this was racist. And people, it'll be on Facebook, it'll be on Twitter, parlor, somebody will be videotaping, you know, if I declare somebody is racist within a bank. But if a white person were to do that, it wouldn't get any, you know, any time at all. But I know for a fact, based on the tons of emails that I'm receiving, is that white people are also experiencing racism and partiality because of the color of their skin. We need yeah. to have a more holistic conversation about this. Yeah, that, and that's so helpful to hear you use those categories and even frame it with a biblical category and then apply it, you know, universally, which is which is so important. I was reminded there's a great quote by uh, John Perkins in his book One Blood, um, lifelong Christian civil rights author, and he put it put mm -hmm. it this way: I believe that if we can get it in our heads, in our hearts, that we are one, we will make it. We are one human race. We are one blood, all created from one man, Adam, and we are saved by one blood, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, who gave His life to reconcile us to the Father and to one another. And I just I love yeah. that. <laughs> And I feel like our, I, I just, I just don't want us to fall victim to the, the culture, the words and the, and the frameworks there, because it just doesn't have the power of that, that that's powerful because that's a message that's yeah. not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to mess up. We're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or accidentally offend or intentionally offend. But as long as there's mm -hmm. a gospel that's true and we're all in this together in that regard, then, then we actually then we've got hope. We can actually move forward, which is which is massively important. So, that and, is... and that language is so countercultural, which is saying that we need racial reconciliation. We need to reconcile, but truly, we've been reconciled through the cross. We were reconciled God to man, and we were reconciled one to another. Now, how do we walk out unity? How do we walk out 
the oneness that Christ prayed for us for in John 17. That's a different conversation than saying that we are not reconciled. Because if we are not reconciled because of the color of our skin, are we in the same family? Like, what is what does this mean? We need to thread this out and really understand what culture is saying and what we're adopting before we move on into the conversation of racial reconciliation. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I, and I want to come to that in a second to kind of how do we walk that out. Um, but before we kind of leave some of our terms and everything, you know, a lot of people and it's getting a lot of play. And so I know you've you've talked about this as well. They're, they're like, hey, I want to say something. I want to do something. And so, you know, with good intentions, they'll say, hey, I want to I want to make sure that people know that I care and that black lives do matter. And so everybody's wanting to use certain hashtags or this organization, Black Lives Matter. And even how should Christians think about that whole cultural dynamic? I mean, you have the NBA. I mean, they're probably going to launch the season soon and that's going to be a big part of that. I mean, there's People are wanting to say, look, in this injustice to this man was was wrong and I'm in, in there needs to be, you know, change in these these particular ways. And so I'm supporting that by doing this. But speak to that from your perspective. How should we think about that as Christians? Is that a, is that a good thing? Is it a wise thing? I know it's well intentioned many times, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's well intentioned. And I will I'll preface my statement by saying this: I am black. And so because I am black, I do believe that black lives matter. I really do. I believe that the lives of my brothers and sisters matter. You know, the lives of my friends matter. George Floyd life, you know, mattered. It, it's not a thing of the hashtag or, you know, like, did I say the right thing and things like that. To me, when, when we choose to jump on board with the organization, People don't understand that they are jumping on board, giving their money to something that is Marxist. Their founders are trained Marxists. This is coming out. And what, what a lot of people don't understand is that Black Lives Matter is really tied to a movement from the 60s and 70s. And Angela Davis, you know, those kind of, of Marxist movements. So, no, I can't get on board with the movement Black Lives Matter because Truly, the black lives don't matter. You know, when you can have 20 people killed in Chicago in a weekend and no sign of black lives matter, I wonder, do the black lives matter? Really? Or do only the black lives that have been killed by white people matter? Which just further builds the division and the, the rhetoric that racism is rampant in America. When I look at the fact that black abortion is higher than any other people group, at least it was um, at the end of last year, early this year, black women have the most abortions out of all you know, women in America, out of all the racial categories. Where are black lives matter for that? Where is black lives matter in the inner cities where parents are struggling and you know, having issues with their children and black gangs are absorbing young men. Where is Black Lives Matter? Black Lives Matter, if you go to their website, they specifically talk about wanting to do away with the nuclear family. The nuclear family that was founded in Genesis. One man, one woman. When we look at Black Lives Matter, the organization, they are pro-black trans and would like to support that above the nuclear family. When we look at the Black Lives Matter website, they are, you know, talking about defunding the police. Well, what does that mean for the black grandmother who lives in the inner city and there's tons of gangs and crime if we defund the police that specifically patrol these areas? Black Lives Matter isn't really for black life. Now, when we get to the hashtag, I can't support using the hashtag either because people conflate the hashtag with the organization. They don't, they're not able to thread that out. And the founders of the Black Lives Matter organization don't want people to use their hashtag simply for saying Black Lives Matter. They're very clear. I've heard interviews with them where they are saying that if you use the hashtag, please know that I want you to use the hashtag to support the movement, to support the organization. So with that, I, I just I can't I can't jump on board with it. And I would say that Christians should not jump on board with it either, because it is not a framework that supports the Christian worldview. Now, yes. Do I believe that Black Lives Matter? Yes, I do. 
but yeah. I can't, I can't post that or yeah. get behind yeah. that, that framework or that organization. Yeah. And I agree. I, I can't, and I agree with, you know, everything you said and, you know, I, I want to support that, like everything in me when I wanted to make sure that, you know, my black friends know that I, I've, your lives matter to me. You, you're loved. you you're valuable to mm-hmm. me. I, I, I want to see these things end, but I can't in good conscience get on board with that because of everything that comes with it. And so that's one of those complexities, you know, as, but thanks but then, for sharing. You know, also check out the divisiveness that it brings because I can't, we can't post on, on Facebook or social media, white lives matter. You will be canceled. What is the setup? You know, what, what can we say? Because white lives do matter too. Hispanic lives matter. Asian lives matter. As, as the church, we have to have a different perspective and a different come from that life matters. We all have our different, like, roads to climb and injustices that we'll face based on sex, based on color of skin, based on education. You know, like, well, we'll, we'll face different things, and people will have different biases and hold those things against us. But how does the church support the human in the pew, the life in the pew? Hmm. Those are good questions. Well, maybe let's kind of kind of shift our conversation a little bit, um, and it's been so helpful to just kind of bring those. I know this may even land controversially with people. Maybe just give that some thought, you know, as even as you absorb all this in this conversation. But I know this is really your heartbeat and why you started the Center for Biblical Unity. But maybe let's talk about ways forward together. Like, how do we walk out biblical unity together right now, especially in a such a, you know, volatile cultural moment that we're in? Like, what's what are some practical ways that we can do that maybe as individuals, families, um, and beyond? Um, I would say for individuals, get clear on your identity in Christ. This has to start with identity. If we don't understand who we are and whose we are, um, we'll never be able to to move forward because culture is always going to try to define you. You're always going to try to say, to put you in a category, this is who you are because you're, you're this color. This is who you are because you're that color. So get clear on your identity in Christ first. That's our foundation. Um, from there, from the individual, I would move to the family. And I would say, make sure that your children are clear in their identity. What is the identity of your family? What is the culture of your family? Your kids will go out into schools where critical theory is the current, you know, dominating worldview. Critical race theory is, is what they're being met with every day. What is the culture in your home that, that changes or challenges the narrative that they're being met with every day? I feel like biblically, um, you know, that is the next step after, after the individual, we look at the family and how are we as a family having conversations about unity, even if my family is all black, you know, how am I talking with my kids about the people who may look different than them? You know, what are some ways that I can teach my children about, about other cultures? What are ways that I can get into conversations with my children about what they may be thinking or what they're hearing at school? I would say um, starting with yourself as the individual, getting your identity clear in Christ with your kids and doing, you know, as a family, what is the culture of your family and how are you having conversations about, about other people groups, about the fact that we are all created in God's image, that we all have dignity, value, and worth, that we should not participate in the sin of partiality, treating others different based on their skin color, based on their education, based on how much money they have things like that. Um, Within the church, I would say it's important that we are educating people on what's happening within culture. If you are a pastor and you're afraid to have conversations about what's happening within the culture, you're missing the people. Black, white, and everything in between is currently being impacted by the issue of race, racism, justice, how do we have these conversations? How do we challenge people to in- investigate their own bias? We all have bias. I know somebody's going to be listening and say, I don't have any bias. I'm going to say, get in a conversation with the Lord. Because <laughs> we are human. We all have bias. Let's just put it out there. Mm-hmm. And so how do pastors challenge that narrative and say, hey, you know, who are the people when you walk by, you hold your purse a little tighter? Or, you know, the ones that you say, well, you know how they are. 
Who is the they in your life? How are you treating people with honor? Let's have a conversation about honor. Let's begin in the church to define some of these terms and say, hey, this is why white fragility is not a thing in our church. We do not ascribe to these terms. We do not hold this. Even though culture might say, hey, this is for you, we, we reject that and we say no. We will not be picking that up because of these things here that are in Scripture. From the church, I would say investigate what's happening within your community. Who are the people within your community that you can feed into, that your church can feed into? How are you upholding the idea of justice, biblical justice? Because there are a lot of things that culture will say warrant our demands for justice, income inequality, or, you know, systemic issues and things like that. Well, how are we defining our terms, number one? And who is the arbitrator of the things that are good, true, and beautiful? Hmm. So culture might say, we need to have another social program. We need more welfare. Is that a cultural definition of what's good, true, and beautiful, or a biblical definition of what's good, true, and beautiful? We need to, as the church, when we move out into culture, move out from the standpoint of Christ, understanding that he knows the things that are good, true, and beautiful, and participate in those things. So the good, true, and beautiful may be hosting a financial class, teaching people in a lower-income area how to do budgeting. How do you open a checking account? What um, What are ways that you can do like microfinancing, how do you how do you start like conversations of entrepreneurship? What are um, the ways that we can get kids, you know, from kindergarten through college? How are we speaking into and building connections for unity cross culturally? You might be at a predominantly black church in the inner city and have a ton of resource and can go and speak into a white church in the suburbs. It doesn't need to just go one way. You know, the call just isn't, which drives me crazy, this call that churches need to be multicultural. I completely believe that churches should be multicultural. I just do. I think that it reflects the kingdom of heaven, and it's awesome. But that's my heart. But that isn't put forward to black churches or, you know, churches that are primarily of one ethnicity that is a, a group of color so to speak, that's put forward on the white church. How do we have more conversations that are inclusive of all? Because these are things that every church and every people group need to hear. Absolutely. So, and that's, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's a great start. I mean, that's a good long list that we can all start. I mean, even start with our own hearts, right? <laughs> I love how you started. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any biases. Like, yeah, you might want to <laughs> talk to the Holy Spirit about that. Yeah. We, all, we all have... Get in the conversation all, with the Lord. <laughs> you may just be surprised what you find. I mean, I mean, just being honest about something that I've been thinking about over the last few years. I mean, probably five years ago, if you'd asked me, okay, well, should Christians be colorblind? I would probably said yes, with good intentions. I wouldn't say that today because I'm like, no, ethnicity is a good thing. God created it. It's part Mm -hmm. of God's creative diversity that he's made. It's a good thing. And it's, you know, and I like how Derwin, uh, Pastor Derwin Gray calls, he calls it, you know, color blessed, like, because we have all these great expressions of culture and ethnicity that we need to learn from and participate in. And it doesn't do us any good to pretend we don't see those things because like like you said you've you're proud of being a black woman that's awesome you know and everything so there's there's all ways we can grow i mean for example that's i'm just talking about me i mean that's just one of those things that i thought i was being spiritual by going yeah there's i'm, I'm gonna be colorblind but actually over time as mm-hmm. we've had more conversations and listened and thought i was like you know what that's actually not what God's heart would be here is to be colorblind to this, right? And so, I don't know, is there one of those that you, and along the way, one of your biases that you've kind of would want to share with people to encourage them to let us know we're all (laughs) in this together, in this process of growing? (laughs) My goodness, just one? Um, (laughs) Man, I feel like I, every day the Lord is is revealing something to me about, ooh, you know, you know that that's wrong. Um, I used to call myself like an equal opportunity racist, because I would have a joke about anybody, it, I could care less. Yeah, just that would just be it. Like ev- every culture does something that's a little off. 
And so I would find ways to jokingly highlight that. And the Lord had to really bring to my, my heart, like, hey, you know, like these, these are really attitudes of your own heart where you should probably be submitting these kind of thoughts to me. You drive down the street and, and somebody cuts you off and all of a sudden it's, ah, why do they? And the Lord was like, you know, what in the world? Like, what is the they? I remember um, last year I was driving down the street and somebody didn't go. I was sitting, I can still see it. I was sitting at this light, ready to turn left. And this guy didn't go. And I was so mad. And I said something. And immediately the Lord was like, you just spoke a curse over this person. And this is how serious people need to be understanding the, the words that are coming out of their mouth. You know, we don't, we, we might choke it up to a joke or, you know, just something flipping because I was angry, but these are curses that we speak over other people. Even things like, oh, you're fragile because you're white. I would say, "Mm, you know, we need to really investigate the way that we're speaking over one another. So I think that that would probably be my one thing that the Lord is really dealing with me on is how do I, how do I speak over others? Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's that's vulnerable and encouraging to everyone and convicting for all of us as well, because I've got those too. I mean, one of the things that, you know, probably my default is it's probably more natural for me to think about things than to listen, you know? And so one of the things I'm trying to grow in and have been is going, okay, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm called to love my neighbor. And before I can love my neighbor, I've got to understand my neighbor. That means I I don't know what it's like to be you. Like, what do you see that I don't see? Like, what, what do you experience that I don't experience? You know, and then, and then how can I grow from that? And that's something that, that, that I'm trying to do daily and trying to be in conversation with the Holy Spirit as you, as you've been talking about it on, on these things as well. So. Oh my goodness, man, time flies. We're okay. Well, there's, there's so much we could talk about and this has been so helpful. Go, go for it. I'm just going to say this really, really quickly. Like it's one, it's not easy. Like, let's just be clear. Let's put that out there. It's not easy. And two, there's grace. Like there's, there's grace. And we have to remember to give grace to others in this moment too, because God gives us so much grace. People are going to mess up. You're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. You know, but we can't be afraid of the conversations. We can't be afraid to try to go again because I believe that, you know, our we have a very real enemy and he's banking on us not going again. Hmm. So, Jeff, that's that's a good word. Grace. Yeah, and that and that's where I think back to that earlier conversation and the uniqueness of the Christian gospel and what we have the resources to move forward is there is opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation and coming together and moving forward in unity that's built into Christianity. It's not built into any, I mean, pick the flavor of the cultural week on the secular options that are out there both now and in the coming years, they just won't have the resources to bring, bring us together in the power of the gospel and in the resurrection of Jesus. So, um, yeah. So amen, amen to that. Well, okay, let's do this. You know, again, we'll have you back. We'll talk more about, there's all sorts of questions I wanted to ask about, but I want to hear a little bit about, you've got a, an exciting conference coming up. That might be a cool next step for people that you're a part of. Maybe yeah. share a little about that and how people can find out about it. Okay, so um, we are having our first annual UP conference. UP stands for Uniting People. And I say it's a time to just, you know, really get together and kind of come together as family. The Lord's been dealing with me on on the theme of family for a long time. Um, and I believe that we have such a unique moment in, in culture to really show like that we are family, but yes, we have our up conference. It is on July 17th and 18th. It is the Friday night for an hour or two. And then on the morning of the 18th. And so we will have myself, um, theologian Krista Bontrager and Professor Thaddeus Williams. He's a professor at Biola, and we will be talking about biblical unity, the case for race, um, justice issues. Like, what what is the Christian's responsibility, and how do we how do we get to unity? I'm going to be putting forward a vision for unity, and 
yeah, it, I, it's going to be good. It's going to be a time to really increase our faith and increase our knowledge of, of unity from a biblical perspective. That's awesome. And, and people will find that at your website, which is the Center for Biblical Unity.com. Is that the place where they need to go find that? Or is there another place too? You can go to our event. So we have been inundated um, and we're still kind of small. So Women in Apologetics has stepped up to host the or to like co sponsor the conference with us. Or which is awesome. Huge, huge fan, um, by the way. Yeah. Yes, so they're co-hosting, and so it's being run through their website. You can go to womeninapologetics.com backslash events, and you'll find it there. You'll be able to register. You can also find it on our Facebook page, the Center for Biblical Unity, and even on our website, there is a, a link to be able to connect you. That's awesome. So the womeninapologetics.com slash events, and you can get everything you need there. We'll have links in the show notes, things like that. Monique, your website is centerforbiblicalunity.com. They have an amazing YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, they can follow you on Twitter. If <laughs> I don't, you know, I have a love hate relationship with Twitter. <laughs> if you're on Twitter and want to right. follow her, <laughs> maybe if you're not on Twitter, don't start. I don't know what, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. But if they are on Twitter, where can they find you on Twitter? The Real Monique D, um, D for Dufon, The Real Monique D is my Twitter handle. So you can go there and find me on Twitter. Um, you can find the Center for Biblical Unity on Facebook. I am on Facebook. You can feel free to friend or follow me. My first name is actually Chantal. And so I am listed as Chantal Monique Dufon on Facebook. But yeah, we're there. Instagram, yeah, all the things, YouTube. So please find me, find the Center for Biblical Unity, support and um, share the content. That's one of the best ways to, to support. Yeah, and they've got you've got these beautiful shirts and swag and, and, and masks, right? It's COVID-19 era, so we've got masks if you want that. And there's all sorts of stuff you can find at their website. So definitely find more of these resources, watch the YouTube videos, you know, there's podcasts, things like that. Um, because we've only scratched the surface today, but it's been such a helpful conversation. So my encouragement to you, if you're listening, maybe you're driving around, maybe you're walking on a treadmill, exercising, something like that. And you're wanting a next step. We'll go to the center for biblical unity. You can sign up for their newsletter and they can support you there as well. Right? They can contribute to the mission of your organization. Yeah. That's clear on your website. Yes, that's clear. You can just click the donate button. You can donate on a monthly basis or give a one-time gift. That's awesome. And so that's a great first step. So check out all of those re resources by Monique Dasan. Um, if you're a reader, I, um, you know, I know you've got some stuff you're working on, you're writing. Do you want to share about any of that, that you're kind of some resources you're working on? I know it's not out yet, but I know you're hard at work on those things. Do you want to give a little teaser on any of that? Yes. So I blog. Um, I've done a couple. I'm not the biggest fan of blogging, but I do it. Um, so you can go and check that out on our website. I was part of a book collaboration. The author is Dr. Thaddeus Williams from Biola University. And the name of the book is Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And it really dives into 12 questions that Christians should be asking about this current social justice movement. And so I have written a piece in there that is available for pre-order on Amazon. Again, it's Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Dr. Thaddeus Williams. He is awesome, and the book is amazing. People um, like Mel Shinvi, Edwin Ramirez, Samuel Say have all given their contribution to this as well. So I'm really humbled to be a part of it. And then I am also beginning to write curriculum. We need something that is from a, a biblical perspective, a historically biblical perspective yes. in regards to race and unity within the church. And what we have right now, what I've seen um, as far as small group studies go, it's only two things, I believe, from what I found, and they both are um, laden with CRT, critical race theory. And so, no, we are going to put out something that is, historically biblical and does not put down, you know, or demean one group of people over another or put one group of people over another. 
Yeah, that, that, and that's so hopeful and encouraging. And again, that's us walking forward with those biblical categories and biblical unity and biblical ends. And so definitely support her and, and what she's doing. You can do that through the website, again, Center for Biblical Unity. Of that book, Confronting Injustice, which I've got an advanced copy, which I'm working through, which is amazing. This audience and podcast and J.P. Moreland, who, who visits and teaches for us at Impact 360, he said of this book, the most important book I've recommended in over 20 years. Um so the go-to resource for clear biblical thinking about social justice. So that's Dr. J.P. Moreland on that book and Monique's contribution and others in that important work. So definitely check that out. Also, um, if, you wanna, if you want a book to check out to read that's also helpful for resources, well, I'll give two quick ones. Um, one is called The Third Option by Miles yes. McPherson. Would you, would you encourage that book as well? Yes, I actually lead a book study group through this book. Oh, that's um, awesome. Miles addresses the issue of racial unity first coming from a place of honor. If we could honor one another as image bearers, you know, what would be available to us in regards of unity? So how do you honor the, the dignity, value, and worth of, the, of an individual in front of you? And it's, it's a really good book. It has um, practical exercises in it and thoughtful questions, I do um, recommend this book. I think it's good for people who may not be maybe used to having a lot of conversations about race. And so this is a gentle guide. Yeah, that's great. And so, and then also a book, which we've mentioned on the podcast before is Oneness Embraced by uh, Dr. Tony Evans and his kind of lifetime of, of working through that. There's a great kingdom perspective and theologically grounded as well as the history and some things that are really important to be aware of in, in the in the history of even black church and the white church and how all that kind of emerged and his experience kind of working through that in South Dallas and bringing a kingdom minded perspective to that and that vision of biblical unity is in that as well. So again, those are just resources for all of us to keep growing. If you're interested, check out those things as, as maybe as you're in conversation with the Holy Spirit about what's a practical next step for you. So, but here, Monique, what I wanted to do to kind of wrap us up today, if you wouldn't mind, would you just pray, pray for us, pray for our just the church today, pray for our culture, for biblical unity. Could you just do that for yeah. us as we kind of wrap things up? Yeah. Father, I thank you so much for your work on the cross that reconciled us to you and to one another. Father, I pray that as we're in this current cultural moment that feels so chaotic, that we would cling to the understanding that we are brothers and sisters first, and, and that Christianity has a better hope for unity than anything the world will ever possess or, or offer us. Father, I pray that we would move forward in unity, that we would um, be of one mind and one heart as we go forward, remembering that we are already brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that we would um, reject the, the narrative that culture wants to offer us regarding oppressed and oppressor. I pray that you would give pastors wisdom on how to navigate their congregations, give parents wisdom on how to have um, impactful dialogue with their children about what's happening and how to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that their identity would be first in you and, and that they would be able to stand within this moment from a place of knowing that they are created in your image and that they have dignity, value, and worth, as does everyone else that we would treat each other with honor. Father, I thank you so much just for our, our time here and our conversation. I pray for those who are listening, that their hearts would be tugged, that there would be challenge, that um, it would spark inquiry, and that, yeah, people would, would really seek you in, in this moment in understanding or wanting to understand more about biblical unity. Thank you so much. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, Monique, thanks so much for giving up time this afternoon. Uh, this has been such a, a joy to have this conversation with you. So helpful, so practical, so important. So again, thanks for your story, what God's doing in you, and, and you're stepping into that. And thanks for taking that time to be with us today. Thank you. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.